Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast, or because I don't know how to set up an RSS feed for some reason, this is the Benjamin Boyce YouTube lecture interview circuit. Today's guest is Paul Vanderclay, who is a pastor of the Calvinist Reformed Church, or a Calvinist Reformed Church, in Sacramento, California. He also runs a YouTube channel that discourses about Christianity and its intersection with various intellectual currents that are spinning about that intellectual web that we are all finding so sticky that its name is called what it is right now. We're working on that. We're trying to work on that. Here you go. Hey, Benjamin. Hey, Mr. Vanderclay. <laughs> call me Paul. Hey, Paul. <laughs> I spoke with somebody who was so polite last night. It was it was kind of uh, off-putting. He kept on calling me sir. I'm like, uh, I don't know what to do. Yeah, sometimes people call me Reverend Vanderclay, and then I think I'm my father. So, hmm. oh, so uh, you come from a, a lineage then? Yeah, both my father and grandfather were CRC pastors. Oh, right on. Yeah, my dad's a pastor too. Oh, okay, or was? I what? guess he's just a chaplain now. Um, oh, just a chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just hierarchy? he's just dealing with the end of life, I guess. You know. Hmm. Uh, uh, That's chaplains. Chaplaincy can be hard work. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's if you're if you're. You know, I have a I have a friend who he, he's a, he's an army chaplain and mm. deals with uh, deals with a lot of. There's a lot of wreckage in terms of PTSD, families. Uh, he's also been a hospital chaplain or a hospice chaplain. I guess he's a hospice chaplain now. So you're you're constantly walking with people through those last chapters. Yes. So yeah, it's, that brings up a question. We we don't need to dive right into the deep end all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll I'll reserve the question in a little bit. But yeah, my dad's a pastor, uh, or he was ordained within the Covenant Church, the Swedish Covenant, which is a offshoot of a Lutheran uh, branch. Yeah. I believe. They're pretty chill folk. Yeah, yeah. The evangelical covenant folks are are pretty big into mega church planting. They've got a number of megas here in Sacramento. Oh, really? So, okay. I'm a, I'm a little uh, I'm I'm a little bit knowledgeable of them, but I'm dramatically less successful, so. Oh, and <laughs> Do you enjoy like that uh, working with smaller numbers, or does it? It, it would. I'm sure it changes uh, how you communicate when you scale it up. Like every every. Yeah. I've I've never worked with big numbers, so I don't know. My father's <laughs> my father pastored small churches. My grandfather did, so okay. It's just kind of been what I've done. So mm-hmm. the biggest numbers have been through YouTube lately, but and that's been a strange thing. Why why is it strange? I mean it's pretty fascinating. Like your classroom or your parish all of a sudden becomes the world. <laughs> yes. It's it's strange because if you're if you're pastoring a local church, a lot of it's face to face relationships and there's yeah. time to talk. And so kind of what I've done with this YouTube thing is to try to, as much as possible, maintain face-to-face relationships and have time to talk. But as numbers scale, that's Mm -hmm. more and more difficult. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you're entering mega church territory rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the weirdest mega church anyone could ever imagine. I think <laughs> you're gonna have to hire a rock band to open for you. <laughs> Get a smoke machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some lights. <laughs> oh, huh. the, my church is so so dramatically unmega. Uh, it it hmm. would uh, it would take people by surprise. How long have you been and, a and pastor? I've well, I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic before I did this, but I've been here at Living Stones for twenty one years. Hmm. Okay. Oh wow. One church. Twenty one years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Father did 36 in his first church, so people say, wow, 21 years. I say, yeah, you know, (laughs) started. 36 is more than 21. And what's your flavor? It's a... Christian Reformed Church of North America. That's that's Dutch. It's Dutch Calvinist. Okay. How Calvinist is it? I mean, I can't remember all Calvin, but I know Calvin's the big... Prede- predetermination, predestination guy, right? Yeah, that's that's what he's known for. I'd say that's that's. I'd, I'd say, I don't know, how could I describe it? Nobody can live like that. Everybody lives as if they're making decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the free will argument that it, it's uh, much more compelling to pretend that it's there, even if you don't know if it's there or not. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I kind of like it because if you think about it, we are, there's so much of our lives that every decision is so embedded in context mm. that, you know, to, to I always find free will to be a dramatic exaggeration of the power we actually have. Yeah, yeah. We're so embedded in context, so yeah, and and we don't we really struggle to have any clear idea about how, say, our agency and God's agency really relate. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that a lot of pontificating on those kinds of questions really gets us very far. Well, even you don't even have to go f- to the God Man question. You can just say, I don't know how much agency I have as opposed to my sex drive or as opposed to my stomach, you know, that's right. That's right. So until I master those things, I don't know if I have any right to (laughs) step out, step outside of that. That's right. Declare my grand autonomy from the forces of the universe. (laughs) I can't even (laughs) declare autonomy over my stomach. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, that's one of the, that's one of the, um, the questions about like Lent is is Lent a part of your uh, practice or a version of that? The the Dutch Calvinists were a little bit were a little bit stubborn about liturgical calendars. Okay, they so one of the things that they did was they instilled the Heidelberg Catechism and said we're just going to do Lord's Day. So you can find some really uptight Dutch Calvinists that don't celebrate anything. In the last 20 years or so, a lot of them have kind of been sneaking back and doing liturgical holiday, liturgical mm. seasons such as Advent and Lent, and and we mm. have at Living Stones, but we we haven't we haven't you know stopped you know 
stopped eating meat or told people that they should stop drinking during Lent or anything like that. Yeah, so, but I, I'm just it, I bring that up because uh, the practice of fasting is at least biblically it's pretty sound, and it yeah. seems to me that one of the one of the uh, purposes of fasting is to really gauge your mastery in relationship to your body and then yes. and then parallel that maybe reflect that to god's mastery over you or your uh willingness yep. to surrender to the will of god yeah precisely but we have it actually early early reformed early reformed leaders were known as sausage eaters while the while the roman catholics were abstaining from meat they would go ahead and eat sausage publicly as an act of defiance against the tyrannical, the tyrannical church, and to exclaim their freedom in Christ by by munching on a sausage in the town square. So that's that's taking the the whole Protestant thing and turning it into like a pre-internet troll kind of thing. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> We're going to troll the Baptists with our sausages and mead. <laughs> Human human nature doesn't change that much. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> Are you in, well, ta- in? Go on. No, I'd like to know a little bit about you. I've watched some of your videos. I watched you play a a game about uh, political correctness or oh, something. Yeah. That's one of the videos I watched that I really really enjoyed. I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they made that, but somebody gave them a lot of money to make that. Um, <laughs> My trajectory into the YouTube thing is that I went to a college in the Pacific Northwest called Evergreen that had a major meltdown. Yes. And I was there when it happened, and what happened, there was this big protest, and uh, the, the library got blockaded, and people got taken hostage, either, I don't know, you can say they did or did not, but people were rounded up by the students. Um, and the students live-streamed the whole thing. Uh, berating People teachers. People were rounded up by the students? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the directors of the protest, I have him on footage saying, I want you to go around and round up all the white teachers that you see, and, and they're going to be here, and they're going to listen to us now. And everybody's like, okay, okay, and then they went, and I have the police logs, too, of, uh, of them describing how students are stopping cars and searching cars and, and saying, if, you're, if you work here, you can't leave, right? Um, so anyways, that got like, they, and they live streamed that onto Facebook. And as you might imagine, kind of the YouTube community kind of erupted. Um, oh. and, but nobody was talking about how that actually happened. So I started showing all the different trainings and the seminars and the workshops and the lectures that were putting on this oppressor, oppressed, systemic racism, every slight is a sin, uh, privilege kind of politic, uh, and putting that into all the students' minds and kind of showing, trying to show how that was this miniature Chinese revolution was the result of these various intellectual steps that the, uh, professors had made for whatever reason. So what got you into YouTube then? What got you into speaking about this or maybe even what got you into Peterson and speaking about Peterson? Well, I, so I, it was about, it was probably during the C16 thing. Okay. I had been following Rod Dreer's blog. I had always been sort of on the left side of my conservative denomination because my father's church was back in the in the 60s. My father's my father's church was in a black community in Patterson, New Jersey, and he came there because the people who had been running kind of a a uh, 
bread san- bread and sandwich handout mission wanted it to become a church and so hmm. he became quite involved in the black community and then as the 60s and 70s rolled on it was kind of a racial reconciliation church a church where black folks and white folks worshiped together so so i had always i'd grown up very much in that milieu so it was a weird combination of african american and dutch calvinism hmm. kind of a very strange place and and so and then I had been a I had been a foreign missionary and done that and then I came to Sacramento which was one of those churches that grew up in the Christian Reformed Church that also had, you know, a lot of African American folks and folks from lots of different backgrounds very diverse congregation, hmm. but I had I had been noticing this 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 kind of liberationism for its own sake that had been seeming to get you know to pick up steam in the in the denomination. And whereas I had always been kind of on the left of the church, I'd thought, well, th- th- there's some there's some other issues down beneath the surface that we should probably have more conversation about instead of just kind of going off to imagine that this this new shape of liberation will somehow bring in some weird political kingdom of heaven on earth. So I, I'd been I'd been reading Rod Dreer's blog for a while, and Jordan Peterson kind of came up in that. And the thing that struck me was here's a a Canadian professor at University of Toronto, kvetching about uh, non-binary pronouns, and I had had a fair amount of experience with that. My kids go to went to public schools here, and mm-hmm. been trying to work that through myself, and. So, so you know, why is this Canadian professor complaining about these things? And so I started listening to him, and then I noticed that he was having biblical lectures. Mm. And then I thought, oh, he's some evangelical that somehow wound up at University of Toronto. So I should listen to his biblical. And I started listening to his biblical lectures. Thought, oh, this isn't an evangelical. <laughs> I had never quite heard anything like this before. Hmm. And. And it really fascinated me. So I started listening to the biblical lectures, and then I started listening to Maps of Meaning and all of that. And hmm. was really fascinated, tried to get my head around what he was doing, and then began to notice all of these people were saying things like, wow, I started listening to Jordan Peterson, and I kind of want to go to church. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> What's going on with that? So I been blogging for years. I'd blogged for a long time, and I'd been blogging about this. And then I thought, and I'd been reading Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, and I thought, mm-hmm. there's something about YouTube and Jordan Peterson. There's something about the medium and the message here. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just make a YouTube video about Peterson, just to see what it's like. And I'd been playing around with YouTube, and I'd been doing a little show with a member of my church called the Freddie and Paul Show, and mm-hmm. I'd just been playing around with it. I had like 12 subscribers, and so I just did a—I didn't know what I was doing. just made a YouTube about Jordan Peterson, and mm-hmm. then woke up the next day, and I had 100 subscribers. And I thought, well, that's weird. And then I had 1,000 subscribers, and I was very disturbed by this because <laughs> I didn't want any YouTube mob messing up my life. But then I thought, well, maybe I should make another one. And and then people started writing to me, and someone showed up at my church and gave me this poster, and huh. and I thought, well, I shouldn't really turn my back on these people. Maybe I'll keep going, and I've kept going, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is what's happened. So 
I backed into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very similar to my own story. I just like started speaking and like, oh god, like I had like little tiny like forty little subscribers, and then like a thousand, like ten thousand. Like, okay, this is a this is a real thing now. I gotta do. I gotta do this. Um, there's something that you brought up the other day. You did a long video. Um, kind of deconstructing various things. I can't even, I've just kind of been watching it for the last few days and there's so many different ideas that you're, you're walking through with Peugeot and Peterson and uh, a lot of these different clips and stuff. But one of the things that you say that's pretty cool uh, about Jordan Peterson is that you're watching him change. You're watching him grow. You're watching him formulate um, in real time. And that's such a novel concept and i mean that like almost literarily like the novel is uh, a story that shows the change of a character um classically speaking or, or in in a certain way of looking at what the novel is um and i just wonder if if that's uh what you think about that and and what does that excite in you to like watch like in real time like this conversation unfold this person grapple with things I think that's a key aspect, at least of the religious side of what of his movement. Hmm. So, so then I, I had all these people talking to me and wanting to talk to me, and a friend of mine said, "Well, you should do a meetup." So, all right, we'll do a meetup. Why not? What could it hurt? Probably no one will show up, and then. 12 people show up and I start to build relationships with these people. And, and I begin to recognize that Jordan Peterson is like the Truman Show when it comes to this pathway from, from Sam Harris atheism into hmm. we're not quite sure what it's going to be, Christianity. Hmm. And that's why when when Peterson is on Dave Rubin with Ben Shapiro and starts talking about a a, a metaphysical spirit underneath the world, people freak out. <laughs> and because they're they're piecing the world together while Jordan's talking, you know, doing his stream of consciousness thing. Yes, okay. And what is that? I don't know. Yeah. But it's happening and it's kind of cool and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, is is that is that true with with how you pastor or how you extrapolate your faith? Is it kind of like a process of of grappling with? I, I, that's probably even a biblical. Uh, there's a metaphor there with Israel. You know, I struggle with God, and and, and that struggle is, is that somehow like embedded into Christianity, or at least into what you see Christianity as? Absolutely, I, I think this is part of the reason why preaching, especially in the Protestant tradition, preaching is such a powerful thing because, hmm. in a sense, as pastors work out their faith and fear and trembling, the congregation does too. Hmm. It's, okay. you know, we're not quite the individuals we think we are. We, hmm. we affect each other in strange ways that we don't understand. And now this is happening with Jordan Peterson and and thousands of people yes. as they wrestle with, well, what does it mean to be a human being? Is there a God? Hmm. How should I live? What's most important? What's at the top of the hierarchy? Is that kind of a safety mechanism? Like that that stance towards a text or towards a belief system of, of development and discovery and perhaps even invention in certain cases, uh, it, is that like a... 
like somehow guards one from becoming a uh, a false prophet or a dictator or somebody who I know the truth and I will emblazon you with the truth and everybody is like we know the truth we will go forth and prosper the truth kind of thing I don't think it's a protection against dictatorships I was I was doing a I would, I do crazy research for my sermons and I was researching the cultural revolution Mao's Mao's cultural revolution and I saw this clip of Chairman Mao you know this 70 something year old man swimming across the Yangtze and his nation behind him yeah. so I'd say actually there's a weakness towards dictatorship and tyranny in this human dynamic uh-huh. more than but but I think this is also a deeply Christian thing because obviously in Christianity, we're supposed to follow Christ yeah. and be like him. Now, obviously, the leader that you're following and who that leader is and what that leader believes will probably be the determinative principle, whether or not you will be a tyrant or hmm. you live out, let's say, Jesus' life, which Jesus comes and lives, you know, your well-being at my expense, all hmm. the way to his crucifixion. So... Mm-hmm. It depends on who you're following. So the the dictator or the leader, let's say, to strip kind of like the the negative uh, glow off of that. The leader, in a sense, is mirrored by the followers, and the followers yeah. kind of take on the shape and even yep. follow to the conclusions the proposition that the leader is proposing. Everybody happens all the time. Happens in every single family. The mm. children watch the parents and. You know, actions speak louder than words, and there's no place that that's more true than in the house, hmm. in the family. Mm-hmm. And how do you this guard is just yourself? Just how we are. How do What's you guard that? yourself? How do you guard yourself from becoming uh, imprinting on your children or your followers uh, characteristics that will lead them in the wrong direction? Like, how do you do self? Oh, it always happens. It, it always happens. <laughs> It does. We we do it all the time. And I, I have, you know, young parents will talk to me and they, you know, they want to be the best parent possible. And it's like, well, you will screw up. Uh, they are going to take on some of your worst characteristics, but they're also going to take on some of your best. So be, you know, be the person you want your children to become. That's the best advice I could give you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you see that Jordan Peterson is kind of a leader then, in a way? And what do you if, oh, and what do you think he's oh, modeling? Sure. What are the characteristics that you think are, are that you're worried about, or and that you would like to uh, underscore? The one of the things that caught my attention right away in some of those early videos in at at Ontario on and campuses in Canada was his. At, at least in some in some videos, his his ability to deal graciously with his adversary, and mm. to not just simply devolve down into mm. anger or or rage. Uh, now he has been he has he has slipped up and become angry in the past. I think part of the reason the Kathy Newman interview was so important was that he kept his cool mm. and was able to continue to engage her. With with a degree of civility, even though many watching it thought she's she's not being fair, hmm. she's she's not doing as she should. Hmm. So his skill in that venue, I think, taught a lot of people keep you know keep don't lose yourself, keep a hold of yourself, keep hmm. your mind engaged, don't let don't let anger cloud your judgment and fly off the handle. Mm-hmm. And how do you? 
do you see that he's kind of being, why do you think he's being a gateway to people entering into the church? Is it specifically because he's talking about the Bible or is there something even deeper than the content of his speech? Like, is it like the methodology of how he's breaking things apart or the ideas that he's going towards? I think he's deconstructing some of the shallow Hmm. certainties of what really is late 19th century positivism. His conversations with Sam Harris, you know, people kind of listen to it a lot at the food fight level, but just hmm. like Mr. I don't know if you don't know who Mr. Plinkett is with the, uh, hmm. uh, he does, he does star Wars, star Wars deconstruction videos on YouTube. Mr. Plinkett has a great line. He says, you didn't notice it, but your brain did. <laughs> and that's what's happening with Peterson all the time people are beginning to recognize that there's a lot more going on between us than mm-hmm. a lot of the cheap certainty that the the new atheists were peddling. And so that's why in many ways he's raiding their house. Hmm. And it, does that explain the backlash that he's getting? He, he seems like he's not getting, he's getting a bigger backlash from leftist media than he is the new atheists. So I'm sure there's, uh, I've seen several videos of people like, going against him on a religious front or arguing with him on on that front but no he's getting a backlash from the left because the left believes that the left believes the left believes they have the program for bringing heaven on earth and hmm. those who don't line up with this program yes you know must be silenced deplatformed you know we we'd love to eliminate them but we don't dare do that hmm. at least yet so and, and that's, you know, his, his appearance on Bill Maher, I think, was a great example of that, because he paused and said, you know, what are you going to do with the half of the country that voted for Trump? And they didn't have an answer for that, because they don't. Yeah. And, you know, politically, I've never voted for a Republican presidential candidate. I don't know if I've ever voted for a Republican, period. So, huh. I mean, I grew up, I grew up a lefty. Yeah. But his question what are you going to do with with everyone who voted for donald trump they have no answer yeah and again my master who's jesus says um love your enemies pray for those who persecute you so well that kind of leaves a lot of the normal the normal options for tyrants off the table hmm. what do you mean by that it leaves them uh well that option you're supposed to pray for your enemies you're supposed to love them. Okay. So that means bigots over here, and that means social justice warriors over there. Yeah. I'm supposed to love both sides. Mm. Well, how do you do that? Well, mm-hmm. It's not easy. Well, just like that, uh, I, I'm. this is not a Bible verse, but I've heard it a lot around Christianity. You're supposed to, maybe it is a Bible verse. I don't know. You can check me on this. Uh, you love the sinner and you hate the sin kind of thing. No, it's not a Bible verse. <laughs> no, that's not. Okay. Just make it sure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The, the relationship between sinner and sin is a lot tougher than we can easily just kind of split it. Yeah, but is, is that the same with ideas? The okay. What's that? Is that the same with ideas then? Like, like you can really dislike an idea and say, call it dangerous without vilifying the people who... Uh, absolutely. Accept that. Yep, absolutely. The, the difficulty is, and, and I think Peterson has done well with this, too. You know, he had a chapter, I think it was the third chapter in 12 Rules for Life, that deconstructed 
that deconstructed our do-goodisms. And that was a brutal chapter. And I think it was it was terribly honest hmm. because we the video I just did yesterday, I ended with a, an epilogue that was in Tim Keller's Making Sense of God, where he talks about a a guy in a Japanese um, a Japanese prison camp in in mainland China and, and talked about how you put people in an area of deprivation and they get selfish and petty and cynical, and that's how we are. Yeah. Now, here's the question. How, most of the time, we tell ourselves religious stories and moral stories that try to place ourselves in a better light. Hmm. That's also how we are. And that's not just true of irreligious people, but also religious people. And then the question is, how can we, in fact, love our enemies when Hmm. they're really our enemies? And they really want to do us harm. Well, here you have the story of a man who prays for his enemies that are that are crucifying him. Hmm. Well, how do you live that out? Well, yeah, it's how do you easy. live it out without dying out? I mean, that's... Right. Unless something, you know, swoops in, unless you have a deus ex machina come in and, and give you bread at the final hour once you've given all your bread away. Which is which is exactly what doesn't happen on Good Friday, and that's and yeah. that's the question of Christianity. Yeah, you know, I, I I tell people this, and they're like, well, so then, you know, if you listen to Jesus, if you're turning the other cheek, and if you're giving your cloak, well, then you get hit twice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you say, well, then you lose this game of this world. And you say, yeah, that's right. And then people say, well, that's not a strategy for winning. Hmm. But what's amazing is that Jesus and Christianity are still around. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? Now, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of the... I've been reading a lot of evolutionary biology because uh, I, I did a lot of work with Brett Weinstein. And um, there's this thing called game theory. And I believe it's in the book, um, The Moral Animal who's the the author, I can't remember his name, but he talks about the game theory of if everybody is being generous to everybody else, the system itself will become much stronger than if everybody's cynical. So right. it doesn't it works by displacing your own benefit onto like a higher level. And if everybody starts doing that, or if enough people start doing it, then that culture is going to rise to the surface. That's right. And think about what true motherhood is. Every mother gives birth to a child at the risk of her life. Mm. And hmm. that mother continues to empty herself for the sake of the child hmm. until the mother dies. That's what real motherhood is. Now, hmm. it's beautiful when the child at some point begins to recognize, oh my goodness, this is love. And then how does the child then respond to the mother? How does the good child respond to the mother? Yeah. Well, by giving herself for the mother. And that's exactly that. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you're going to have situations where uh, the child is selfish mm -hmm. and um, and the mother still dies. Yeah. Which in my when my in my take says that's why Christianity doesn't work without the resurrection, because what the resurrection finally says is all of those all of those people who have loved their enemies and paid a price for that with their lives don't finally lose. Hmm. 
But what if we're talking about on a cultural level where you have a growing contingent of very um, stop-at-nothing people who believe that they can institute heaven on earth? Is yeah. there? Are you just supposed to lay down your sword and, and let them corrupt your culture on, on a massive level? Or do you need to enter the fray on some level? That's 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 always a tremendously difficult answer, and it's it's very hard to add, to answer in the abstract because it's always must be answered in the particular. Now, hmm. part of Christianity is Romans thirteen and the power of the state, and it's the job of the state to actually use the sword for order, and that, in terms of the biblical story, is always countered by. The fact that especially during, say, the Roman Empire, states were dramatically corrupt and incredibly brutal. And so you have the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul say things like, submit to the state, both of whom were killed by that state. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you see, if you think Donald Trump is a, um, a lascivious child, you should read histories about Tiberius or Caligula or Commodus. Um, they, make, they make Donald Trump look like a Puritan. Yeah. Um, but the, it was in this context that Christianity actually flourished. Hmm. And you'd say, well, why would it flourish? Well, the plague comes to down, and anyone in their right mind would flee the town, except Christians stayed and cared for the dying, often at the cost of their own lives. Mm -hmm. And then those who actually got Oh, those who actually survived the plague thought about, boy, my family fled town, and these Christians actually stayed and cared for me at mm. the cost of their life. Mm -hmm. I'd sure like to be like them. Hmm. And Painful. in a weird way, that's how Christianity conquered in a terribly brutal regime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you've got, well, think about, think about the American civil rights movement. Yeah. Here's the irony of that movement and why I think a lot of the movements today that try to appropriate the mantle of that move movement don't understand that movement, because mm -hmm. here you have, you know, legitimately, legitimately oppressed African-Americans who are through and through Christians. They're meeting in church and they're walking on marches and they're saying things like, the only thing you can't you can't make me do is hate you, so I will not hit back. You can turn the dogs on me, you can turn the fire hose on me, but you cannot make me hate you. So go ahead and take my body. And of course, the most fame one of the one of the most famous one of the most famous sermons by Dr. King is, you know, that evening, you know, you know, I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you. So all of that has built into it Christianity, and I'd say the the degree of Christianity that was present in the culture saw that self-sacrifice, and that then moves the hearts of the bigots. Because the question is, what are you going to do with your enemies? Well, if you are an enemy to your enemies, you are not going to change your heart, and all you're going to do is perpetuate the cycle. Hmm. So what you have to do is love your enemy. Hmm. And that may mean you may lose your life, you may lose battles, and it may go on for centuries. Hmm. But you, you would still, you still actively champion a, a specific set of ideas, and, sure. and you elaborate them and you put them forward. You don't just bow down to any misinterpretation of those ideas, or do you no. just 
allow misinterpretation to to flourish. Sometimes, but most often not. Jesus, you know, so so then people get the impression, okay, so what Jesus was was a doormat. Well, if you read the Gospels, Jesus isn't a doormat. Yeah. Jesus sometimes says some of the most obnoxious and offensive things. He <laughs> yeah. calls his he calls his religious you know, he calls the religious leaders of his people whitewashed tombs. Hmm. I mean, he he says alarming things, but then at the last moment, when when they're heaping mockery on him while he's splayed naked on a cross, hmm. he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So Jesus clearly had a capacity to at one moment be incredibly precise and critical of his adversaries, but at the other moment, it, it, see, it's incredible how he navigates that first century culture war, because everyone expected him to, hmm. the centurion comes and says, will you, will you heal my servant? And he does. Well, this ticks off a whole bunch of people because you're not allowed to heal a centurion servant. The centurions are the oppressive Roman dictatorship hmm. that is oppressing us. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to heal him. And then the religious leaders say, well, don't eat with sinners. Well, who are the sinners? They're tax collectors and prostitutes. Are prostitutes sexual sinners or political sinners? And Jesus says, I'm going to engage with them, and I'm going to talk with them. Tax collectors are Roman collaborators. But Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house and eats with him, even though he's risking ceremonial uncleanness. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus crosses all of these lines, yes. but in all of these strange ways to make his point. And what's that point? The, uh, it's a point about humanity, about what, the it's a nature. Point about humanity. Yeah. That's right. That, in in a sense, what Jesus does is takes this Old Testament tradition that's implicit in the Mosaic Code of Israel being a priesthood, a nation of priests to the rest of the world, yes. and then Jesus acts on that and essentially says, Roman centurions are themselves being oppressed by something that. The Jews are too. Hmm. And I have come to declare liberation. So Jesus hmm. is a liberationist. But liberation from what? Well, we started we started off saying that, well, maybe it's liberation, maybe I need liberation from my own appetites. I definitely do. Hmm. Maybe I also need liberation from particular religious tyrannies. I definitely do. Hmm. Maybe I also need liberation from certain political tyrannies. I definitely do. But that liberation must come also with tremendous self-control. And so then Paul comes in and says, you need to be controlled by the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? And what does that mean? Well, that's that's where we go, and that's what we talk about. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so Paul introduces a uh, almost a... Correct me, please. He almost... he Where Jesus lived the life of Jesus, Paul comes in and he places uh, like a, a another layer, intellectual layer upon the life of Jesus. He adds to the life of Jesus this this rubric of spirit and logos. Oh, I guess John did that too. Yep. Um, and then where does that lead? And that that's what the scaffold of the church starts to build upon and build upon and build upon. So, so Jesus is ministering for the most part with, in the Galilee and Judea, with this small element of Jews who are living in their land. Paul is a diaspora Jew, mm -hmm. and he comes, and so he's dealing with the Jewish community that I think some estimates have they were about a tenth of the population of the Roman Empire. They had flourished in wow. the diaspora, and, and he is dealing with 
okay, so so it's the craziest story imaginable. So here you have this Jew and the one people in the world that would never ever say someone could be a God man because, you know, boy, that would get beaten out of you fast because of the way polytheism was beaten out of the the mm. the Hebrew people, basically from the Old Testament prophets on through. So at the end of the story in Matthew, after Jesus is risen, Jesus, they are worshiping Jesus and some doubted. So then, so, okay, so what does Jesus' resurrection mean? Yeah. What does yeah. Jesus' resurrection And so Paul, as... You know, one of the best educated, brilliant Jewish scholars, diaspora scholars of his day, sees Jesus on the road to Damascus and is like, holy cow, what am I going to do with this? And so he spends 14 years in, could be in Arabia, just trying to figure this out. So who is this Jesus? Because I I saw him and, and we have these these people who are following it, and it's a terribly messy dynamic situation, but mm. Paul starts to figure this out, and he starts to gain a following, and he starts to write letters, and of course, generations after, people begin to look back at those letters and say, there's really something about the way Paul was putting this together, and you know, over decades and centuries, mm. this all then accumulates into a corpus, and yeah. on and on. What would you say the seed of Paul's... Uh idea is, or just the, the essence? Well, the, the real question Paul had, so in the, in the time, you know, if you look at, at the end of the book of Daniel, you get these, these ideas about resurrection. And so then hmm. Paul appears to Jesus, or Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. He goes back to, you know, he goes back to Jerusalem. And what is this crazy talk about resurrection? So he talks to Peter. And he talks to James, and he begins talking to people who saw Jesus after he had arisen, and because what does it mean theologically that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended? Because at that point, the Jews were anticipating a general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. What does it mean that Jesus rose in the middle? And that's essentially what he has to work out. And so if Jesus rose, it was, arose in the middle, and if Jesus is the Messiah, what does that do to our theological system and our practices? And, and what does that do to the, the wall between Jews and Gentiles yeah. and all of this stuff that Paul had been practicing? So that's what he's trying to work out. And what, what's the key that gets him to, to figure it out? Does he figure it out, or does he just initiate a process of trying to figure it out? Well, he, he initiates a process that continues on into the church. You know, it isn't until you start having these church councils that they start formulating these ideas about, hmm. you know, Trinity. What is the Trinity? You know, one God, three persons. Uh, what is Jesus, two natures? I mean, all this theological stuff that yeah. that then gets connected with with Greek philosophical categories. Yeah. But but very early on, I mean, the Apostles' Creed is a very early document, and right away you begin to see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of that is developing. Mm-hmm. Are, is your denomination um, very visual at all, like the Greek Orthodox or the Catholic Church is? No, I, I'm from a tradition of iconoclasts. Yeah. We were breaking Jonathan Peugeot's masterpieces. <laughs> <laughs> 
So so maybe if you know John and I are friends, that'll that'll heal some of the wounds of the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing like Christians being very unchristian-like to one another to spark history. <laughs> That's right, and Christians have been doing that for a very long time, yeah. much to our shame. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think it, it's uh, just a manifestation of, of human nature. But I bring that up because I wonder how how does your denomination uh, visualize or, or conceptualize? I guess it's not visualize; it's conceptualize the the Trinity as a right. as a it's almost like a kind of a circuit or a process of the Spirit. Well, well, actually, the logo of the Christian Reformed Church in North America is a triangle and a cross put together. Okay. So, uh, we're, we're a very unvisual denomination, but we at least have that. Yeah. And But we're, the, the Christian Reformed Church is is a creedal church, and so we we subscribe to the main creeds of the church. Calvinism... You know, it's it's ironic. I'm having a conversation with some some other Protestants. You know, our Calvin was was John Calvin a Calvinist? And probably the best answer is no, he wasn't. Well, what on earth do you mean by that? In that in the early phase of the Reformation, there, Calvin and the Reformed tradition called themselves Reformed Catholics because they looked at the Roman Catholic Church at that point and said. There needs to be some correction on some of these things, mm-hmm. and and some of the corrections involved. A lot of the reformers were pastors, were rather, you know, smart pastors who said the church needs to recalibrate some of these things, and because of also mm-hmm. some political things that were going on in Northern Europe at the time, they had the freedom to begin trying to recalibrate things, mm-hmm. and that's what a lot of the Protestant Reformation was, but. It, the conversations, the early conversations didn't go well, and <laughs> maybe someday we can put the church back together. I think that would well, be a good thing. I mean, it seems like historically the church has always been in a process of correction and reformation and, and protestation and, and revision constantly. Yes. It seems like potentially with the influence of whatever Dr. Peterson is putting into the recipe, it seems like if there is an influx of people back into the church, it will necessarily have to go through another reformation. Yes. Do you, do you see that happening? And, and how do you see it needing, what needs to be reformed or corrected? Well, well, part of, part of why I have stayed on this is I saw very quickly that many of the people who now we're becoming interested in Christianity and the church and the Bible. We're going to have a difficult time finding their way into a church. And I don't mean into sort of the church. I'm into because to be a Christian is part of you're you're part of a local body of believers with all the messiness. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's like someone saying, Well, I'm married, but I don't actually have a spouse. I mean, that, that makes no sense, um, because okay. being married means figuring out how to actually live with someone, which is a, and, and to promise you're going to live with that person for the rest of your life. And it's like, boy, that's almost crazy, but that's what being married is. And so I very quickly saw that, boy, so so Jordan Peterson followers, they're not going to fit into the main line because mm. of that left of that left-wing hit job done on Jordan Peterson. So once you say Jordan Peterson, everyone's like, oh, the 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 alt-right 
misogynist, transphobic yeah. professor from Canada. So they're not going to fit into the main line. They're going to go into the evangelicals and you say, oh, Jordan Peterson, the guy that talks about Darwin and Jung. So evangelicals <laughs> are going to have a problem with them. And so a lot have gone to the Orthodox and the Orthodox will say, sure, come on in, spend a year or two with us and study catechism and and maybe, but or just maybe, we'll let you be a member. And God uh, bless them. Some people have been determined enough to go through that, yeah. but a lot of folks are going to be like, "I don't know anything about this." So I'm, I want to see them be able to find homes in churches. Mm-hmm. And so it would need to. You're you're thinking that it would need to either retrofit actual churches that exist now, or just start some sort of pamphlet or process of how to form a church or how to be a part of a church and and what does it mean to be in a church yeah i i really don't know so i've hmm. just been holding meetups and we just talk and okay i'll i backed into the youtube thing i'm probably backing into this thing too huh but but part of it is see i also think i wouldn't have paid much attention to jordan peterson if i didn't think he was offering some light in terms of some longer term issues that Christianity in the West has to deal with. And I think some of those issues have arisen around science and religion. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the difficult things that has been going on in Christianity is that in some ways, if you're reading the book of Genesis, you're reading a story about a flat earth with a bowl on the top of it. And then when you go to school, you're imagining we're on globes circling circling the sun and so what that means is people have kind of a split world mm-hmm. and and that that division of the world happened in the in the in the fallout of the wars of reformation that ravaged europe for a long time and mm-hmm. we've not really put that together and so peterson comes along and somehow through science convinces atheists that maybe they should think about Jesus at the top of the hierarchy. And it's like, I I, I don't know that we can exactly describe what's happening, hmm. but our brain knows it's happening. Hmm. And we're gonna, it's worth, it's worth working on. So it's like the, Jordan Peterson's initiating a discussion. It's probably happened elsewhere, but he's bringing it to the front of our consciousness, uh, of getting these two parties to turn back towards each other and recognize each other. And, and instead of being kind of enemies, but to turn around and kind of like embrace in a way. Well, if Jonathan Peugeot and I can be representatives of the church, I hope so. There, I don't know how many of us there are out there. Okay, yeah. But what, what's the what's one of the big things that needs to happen to make a reconciliation between uh, believers of the Christian God or practice pr- practitioners of the Christian faith and science or or what you call positivism? And I'm never quite positive what positivism is, but. So, so what happens toward in the 19th century is with all of this excitement about what we can begin to see ourselves doing with science and technology, we begin to imagine that the world is made up of atoms. And we can put these atoms together. If you 
look at, say, early atomic theory before a lot of the stuff in the early 20th century. I mean, atoms are these building blocks. And if we can start manipulating atoms with chemistry, we can do all these great things. Yeah. And we can build the world. One of the hmm. one of the one of the most interesting books I read a couple of years ago was about the Oneida community in upstate New York, written by an, an ancestor of some of the people there. I mentioned it in some of my videos. It's like, uh, you know, free love and a well-set table, something like that. Okay. And, and that community basically epitomized the, the height of the height of 19th century optimism about what you can do by joining religion and science together. And, and in some ways, Brave New World also has some of that, hmm. because now we can tear down all the old things and yeah. and we're going to practice we're going to practice eugenics and we're going to practice technology and we're going to create the perfect society here in our little compound in upstate New York, which was the most Christian area in you know, in North America, that was the burned over region. <laughs> and and so, you know, what, what happens is complete chaos. Yeah. Utopia doesn't come. And <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, they made, yes, but it's a it's a fascinating book. And what's amazing is you read that and you begin to see, oh, wow, you know, the kind of stuff we're dealing with now, it's not new. Yes. Yeah. It's new to us because we're only... 30 40 50 years old yeah but it's not new yeah. we just we sh we live these short little lives and we never study history yeah and so we think oh my goodness women are oppressed <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my goodness men have to live labor under tyrannies yeah <laughs> it's something you keep on bringing up um several times now is this idea of heaven on earth yeah. What is up with that impulse that we have? Is that a unique thing to our culture? Is that just something embedded in the human animal, the human beast? Well, don't we want it? Don't we want everything to be good? Don't we want it to be good all the time? You know, so, you know, when Sam Harris is talking to Jordan Peterson and he starts talking about, you know, you know, we can calibrate these little, our, our little sense of goodness, that's true, because because this is better than that. Uh, yeah. Not having, not stepping on a nail is better than stepping on a nail, and and we kind of scale that up. Yeah. But I, I was just working on my Sunday sermon, and you know, so I'm talking. I'm going to probably the introduction to my sermon is going to be this this lovely little truce that happens the first Christmas of World War One, when you know they stop fighting. For that e that next Christmas day, and they play soccer and they share food, and we tell this story and we say, "Ah, isn't it isn't it wonderful that if we can only deal with each other as face to face people, then then mm. we won't have wars." And it's like, have you ever seen a divorce? You ever heard of marriage counseling? We we want everything to be good. Yeah. Well, why it isn't it isn't so simple because we have these structures. And we say, well, why couldn't World War One have ended with that with that Christmas Day truce? Well, I don't know that the Belgians on whose farm they're playing soccer would really want to cede to the Germans. And we've got all of these ties all up and down. So, yeah, try heaven on earth. Why don't you why don't you be heaven now and see how well that goes for you? Mm -hmm. So it's it's just rather facile thinking. 
and and what we don't realize is how we really are deep down. And and I think Peterson nicely talks about Dostoevsky and and Tolstoy, both of whom made the point. I mean, Tolstoy, if you've never read Tolstoy's Confession, it's a little book, but it's a powerful little book. And, and he talks about, as Peterson says, the fact that he had a great career, he had a wife that he loved, he had beautiful children, he had all kinds of money, and he could barely keep himself from hanging himself. What's with us? That we are deeply broken, and we don't really have a clue how to fix ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's how we are. And how does Christianity come in to the equation at that point? Or is it at that point that Christianity starts to present answers? I think experientially for a lot of people, it's exactly at that point where Christianity comes into the picture. I, I was li- listening to Mark Maron. Mark Maron had a podcast, and I I started blogging after this because I, get, I got sick of losing references. Mark Maron had a podcast, and Mark Maron... Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard his podcast. He mm-hmm. he inter- he's a comedian. He interviews comedian comedians and he's a funny guy, but he's also a comedian in recovery. So he mm. like many people wrecked his life on alcohol and drugs, had to get sober. His take on Christians were Christians are people who couldn't get sober in any normal way. So they had to do the absolute crazy thing like you know, deliver their life up to a higher power. And so it's exactly at that point when we recognize how out of control we are, that we begin looking for a solution that is beyond ourselves. Yes. And so the Christian story, I think, in, in Petersonian fashion, although I don't think Jordan Peterson quite has the whole Christian story in terms of what he's presenting or packaging currently, the, the Christian story is that we are in such, such bad shape, we needed a rescuer to come. But this rescuer has to work on various levels. If, if you can't save the world without dealing with the individual, and you can't deal with the individual without also dealing with structures, it's always yes. a both and. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so Jesus comes and in that story begins that process. Now, also built into Christianity is the fact that no Christian has the answer. If I tell you, well, I want you to pray, and I want you to fast, and I want you to tithe, and this is how you're supposed to treat the people around you, then the kingdom of heaven will come. No. The the kingdom of heaven is always a gift. And what Christianity is, is living in between two ages. The age of sin and death, or the age of decay, and the age to come. And so if you live in the middle of those ages, which is exactly what Jesus does, you will get what he got. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a good deal. He got crucified. Yeah, but he also got raised. Well, how do I believe I'll get raised? Well, why did he believe he was going to get raised? Hmm. There's the challenge. And you might look at that and say, well, I don't want that deal. I'd say, okay, go try another. See Mm -hmm. how that goes for you. That living between two ages. um, I'm sorry. That living between two ages uh, makes me think about what you were talking about in the episode that I watched. And one of the things that you were speaking about was pattern and matter. And and that pattern is always governing matter. And what I was thinking while you were talking about that, I'm like, well, what about randomness? What about variation? What uh, What about being alive, being 
aware that I, I am exerting patter, pattern over matter. I'm, I'm on the cusp between matter and that which is not matter, that which is not yet, which could be the spirit in a, in a present sense or the future in a, in a towards uh, a not present sense yet. Well, randomness is easy to see. If you roll a, if you roll a die, does that die, when we say, well, I can't, pre what randomness essentially is, is our inability to predict something more complex than we can think about. That's hmm. what randomness really is. Hmm. It, it, it isn't, a, a true materialist will not say, or should not say, when it comes right down to it, that anything is random. Everything should be the product of the system that's around it. That's what a materialist will say. Hmm. So, so on one hand, there is no such thing as random. So then you have the question, well, well, what kind of world are we living in? Because, so if you listen to, let's say, Matt Delahunty, I did a bunch of videos about his conversation with Jordan Peterson. Matt mm -hmm. Delahunty will say, well, it's the laws of physics. Well, and then I would ask, uh, first of all, are those laws of physics material? Mm -hmm. They say, no. Well, what are the laws of physics? Well, the laws that we discern are patterns. That's mm -hmm. what we discern. And mm -hmm. so then we notice those patterns and rewrite them down. But that doesn't answer why those patterns exist as they do. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, well, where do those patterns come from? Yeah. So then the question is, well, what – I was just actually reading a blog today by someone who was went took this journey from atheism to Christianity, partly because he sat down and was read David Bentley Hart and – uh, Edward Fesser, who was a Roman Catholic, so an Orthodox and a Roman Catholic, and and they were basically saying, no materialist can answer the question of why anything exists. And that's really where theism begins, with that hmm. question. Hmm. So, let's imagine Frodo in Middle-earth asking himself why he exists. And so then I ask people, well, if Frodo were going to look for Tolkien, where could he find him? And Gandalf and himself, probably and Sam a little bit too, and maybe right. even the orcs, you know? That's right. You will you will begin to see Tolkien all around you. And this historically has been the answer that that Christianity um, has has given. Is well, that where, why could that why that even the question why be kind of like a just a accident in and of itself? Like we, we only need why in order to figure out how not to die, right? So, so that why we have the capacity for why that outstrips our uh, our our need for whys once we're comfortable enough to not need to ask why all the time to assess threat, right? So it's a it's sure. a threat assessment tool that is now just it has so much excess. So then we retroactively fit all these structures onto the why just to channel that that energy that that prompt that's only there for survival. Well, why? I'm going to use it again. Uh, <laughs> why would that be true on the small scale and not true on the large scale? What do you mean? Well, we know that why is an important question for survival. Yeah. And we say, well, maybe that's only important for survival. Well, why would that be true in the small scale and not of the large scale? Why would it not be like a fractal that, in fact, scales up? Yeah. So it, which is why, probably why we keep asking it. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we are ourselves part of that fractaling. That's right. Yeah. And so so by, by I'm just trying to distill what you said. So 
by scaling up, like, there's the why of the immediate moment, and then the why of the day, the why of the week, the why of, like, what's my next five-year why, and then what's the why of my life? And then what's the why of those around me? What's the why of the people, my tribe, and my state? And then you eventually get to the point where you're asking, what's the why of the world? Right. And, and if you're a materialist who says, you know, there is no why, well, then that scales all the way back down too. And so, you know, for How example, does that affect one, you? well, why should I love my, why should I love my child? Why should, why should a mother sacrifice herself for the welfare of the child? Well, that was built into me by my species. Well, yeah. well, Brett Weinstein says, well, why do we have to, why do we have to live out the programming that these tyrannical genes have given us? Yeah. Well, which programming are you not going to live out? So, so hmm. that's, so someone comes to me, you know, again, after I started my videos and same, same story, he actually, he had, he had been a Christian and then he gave the whole thing up a lot because of science. And then he had a child and hmm. he began to realize, oh my goodness, what wouldn't I do to protect my child? I, I, I can't believe this is just programming. I, I, I honestly must think this has to scale up. There, hmm. there needs to be a real reason why I love my daughter that's bigger than just, well, this is just my programming. That there's some, there's some truly good thing about sacrificing my life and my well-being you know, maybe not dramatically, but every day, what a good parent does is every day they sacrifice their life for their child. And mm -hmm. we say, that's good. Hmm. And, and just like you said, while well, all that generosity scales up and up and up, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we all benefit from it. Hmm. And so in a way, to, to believe in God or to, to postulate a primal cause or, or an answer to the why that you cannot know, but that, that allows you to merge yourself or to let go of the, um, the smaller difficulties that would cling to you. I guess in a way, like the, the weight of the world, not necessarily sin is in mistake, but the weight of the world is able to be offered up to uh, a greater will or... Yes. But how do you I, how do you slip and uh, not slip into like a facile like uh, this happened to be because God w said that this would happen to me and not turn around and clean up your room how how do you prevent yourself from not like actually taking care care of yourself if you completely surrender everything up to the great why well just about every one of my sermons I I end with misery deliverance gratitude. So misery is the reality of this world, which is not only not only is the problem of the world my enemy, the other guy, but the problem is in here. The the line yeah. between good and evil runs through every human heart, Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. That's right. Deliverance. God saw what a mess we were and through, through total generosity sent his son to become our victim and, and didn't intervene. Okay, so there's the deliverance. Now gratitude. Think about saving Private Ryan. These these soldiers, you know, battle all the way through D-Day and find, you know, find Private Ryan. His brothers are dead, hmm. and they've lost a bunch of their buddies on this insane mission to save him because someone up in Washington doesn't want bad PR. And Tom Hanks looks at Matt Damon and says, "Earn it." 
you know, and Matt Damon could have said, lucky me, you idiots just <laughs> battled through Europe. But but something in our heart says we're we're moved by the the heroism of 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 what has happened. And so then in the Gospels, you know, the, the centurion looks up at Jesus dying and says, surely this man was the son of God. We're moved by that. We're, we're moved by that display of generosity and self-giving. Hmm. And then when we see something that beautiful, we say, that's what I want to be like. And every hmm. kid that has a noble father, you know, and, and that's me. My father was a, was a noble man. He poured his life out for the forgotten people of Patterson, New Jersey. And, you know, on one hand, as a little boy, I'd look at him and say, gosh, what an idiot. <laughs> I remember I remember there was once that we had this we had this rope that we were playing with as a kid. You know, it was a rope, okay? It's just a rope. And and I and I'm my father is outside doing something and some kids come up and ask him for a rope and they say, We'll bring it back. And my father had no guile and said, sure. And he gives him the rope. And I go out and I'm like, they're not going to bring it back. <laughs> he just gave away my rope and I'm ticked off. But now later I realized, yeah, he probably shouldn't have given away the rope. But what he did for these people was so noble and so beautiful. At some point you begin to say, what, what am I going to live my life for? And mm. and this is what happens with every mother. I um, I don't have it up anymore. But a friend of mine, very successful man, grew up poor black kid in Watts in L.A., and his mother kept him out of the gangs, made sure he was in school, put him through high school. She did this by cleaning other people's houses and being a janitor. And I'll tell you, when that woman died, he threw her the best funeral you could imagine. He had senators and mayors and why? Because he knew what it cost her for him to be what he is. Yeah. That that's what it that you know, why live any other way? It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's hmm. heroic, it's gorgeous. Huh. There's the gospel. Hmm. There's it, it, there's why we don't say, ah, Jesus died for my sins. I'm gonna sin more. No, because it's beautiful and I wanna be like that. Hmm. And and when you do sin, you're not you're you're creating you're corroding that great society that that is afforded you as much as you've been afforded without realizing it for, insofar as you're taking it as granted everything that that's you right. have right I, now. I'm squ I'm squandering Tom Hanks sacrifice to save me from certain death on D-Day. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. Why what in, what you know that's that's hellish in and of itself. You see it's all built in all the way out which what is well, every time I sin, I'm inviting a little bit of hell into me. Hmm. It's, the, it's, that, it's that selfishness. It's the one who looks at his kid and says, yeah, I probably should play a game with you, but I'm just going to be self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the mother that, that looks at the child and sees, oh, my daughter's, my daughter's got it better than me. I hate her for it. So I'm going to be the kind of mother that nobody wants. Hmm. So there's just a little bit of hell. And again, Peterson gets this right, too. It, it all fractals out. Yes. Heaven and hell. And that doesn't, discount, that doesn't discount the reality of it at extremes, because extreme realities exist, too. But it just mm -hmm. says that it's all connected. Mm -hmm. 
So taking that into account, that gratitude, taking also into account humility that you can't know everything. I think you were bringing this up in, in the episode the other day. Yep. We, we just can't. We're unable to see everything. We have to distill it down into cartoonish symbols. Um, so taking those two things, uh, gratitude, humility, and yet still the desire to change the world, then how do you go forth and change the world? How do you become an activist in the world uh, and, and not fall into the trap of that heaven on earth uh, dystopia? You know, right now with the Patreon thing, I was looking at all this stuff this morning and I was, I was just I was just torn by it because I am a very I'm very much a non-activist. Yeah. And and again I think another thing that Peterson gets very right is clean your room. Do do you want to you know do you want to change the world? Raise your children right. Is there anything harder than that? Probably not. Hmm. Uh, do you want to change the world? Start in your little place. This is why I'm a small church pastor. And you know, hmm. I've got ambitious fantasies just like anyone else but one of the things that i realized you know by watching my father and and how he pastored was you know love love these forgotten people in in the first ward of patterson and hmm. that's enough you're just a human being just 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 do the right thing start there you, you, you know, the, the world is too big for you. And that's, again, hmm. part of the reason I love Tolkien is that, you know, yeah, you've got Gandalf and you've got Aragorn, but but who actually saves the world? Well, it's it's Frodo. And, and in fact, he almost does it unintentionally. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's virtually an accident yeah, that causes yeah. finally the destruction of the ring. Yeah. And, and that's how we are. So... And, and again, again, I think Peterson is right when he says, you know, yeah, you're you're 19 and and you're you've been you're you're all filled with these ideas that you've gotten your from your professor and go out and do this. And I was that way as 19 too. Oh, I'm gonna yeah. gonna change the world. And then you realize I'm an idiot. I can't even <laughs> like you said. I can't even I can't even get my stomach to obey me. Yeah. So so why don't I begin right here? Yeah. I like you brought up another thing that you brought up is that we all want to be gods and and we continually find that we're horrible gods and the the I, I don't mean to be flippant, but one of the things that we all can do is die. Like, that's something we can do no matter what. So, Jesus is modeling a kind of God that we all can do. That's right. I've never <laughs> thought of that before, but that's, that's really... I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. It'll appear. And so, if I don't... See... Peterson says pastors are liars. We're also thieves. So you just gave me something. <laughs> Where'd you get that from? I got that from Benjamin Boyce. He gave that to me. We all want to be gods. And Jesus says, you want to be a god? Here, I'll show you what gods do. <laughs> yeah. The real god, you know, every king asks young men to die for him. The real god mm. dies for the young men. Yeah. Yeah. That that's uh that's wonderful. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation because like I think you kind of like forced us to couch it into ourselves and like what we do and 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 making it realistic. And the one of the traps of entering into a ph philosophical debate or a theological you know adventure is that you're talking about all these ideas that are very nebulous. And Peterson's really good, and it's it's art. 
what he yeah. does is art. It's, yeah. it's a rhetorical, it's, he's at the pinnacle of the rhetorical game. Uh, but how do we make that real to real people? How do we, how do we give a place for people to take ideas and like interact with each other through the ideas? And the ideas can melt away and hopefully they're good enough ideas that they can keep on propagating that communion. Uh, and and it seems like we might be on the cusp of, or we're probably always been on a cusp. But this is just another form of us breaking the bread of of all these all these ideas, but but doing it in a in a buttery manner, I guess. <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> I think that's true. And and that's why, you know, people will sometimes say, "Well, you're my pastor," and it's like, "Yeah, but you're always you're always a Christian at the local level." You're always a Christian face to face, and that's probably where you're a crappy Christian most, <laughs> because it's and, and that's what people are like. Well, I went to that church, and 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 they were like hypocrites, and they were selfish, and they didn't know how to behave, and they were playing games, and it's like, yeah, that's what's in church. Those are the people you'll find. Well, I don't yeah. want to be around them. I want to be around perfect people. Yeah, you want to marry perfect people too, and then you're married. <laughs> so then you think, oh, I found the perfect person, and we got married, and it's wonderful. I say, yeah, wait a few years, you'll. <laughs> But they'll they'll think you're not so perfect after a while. <laughs> but that's where the real work begins. Yeah, and that's because and, hmm. that's where I begin. That's where I have to start to recognize. No, I'm I'm the selfish idiot. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I can't even manage me. Never mind the world. Yeah. So a, a rejection of the imperfect uh, puts you on a crash course towards being unable to even live in your own skin. Uh, like it, you, you start rebelling against the imperfect in the hopes that the perfect will arise, but you always have to snap it back down to, I can, I can move this a little further towards perfection, but perfection itself is just a direction. It's not a state right. that I'm ever going to find. I'm, I'm not going to get there. And, and then if you realize that we are, we are formed beings, well, then I begin to realize, yeah, my parents, I, I had wonderful parents, but they weren't perfect. And so some of their crap got built into me. Mm-hmm. So I've got that crap to deal with. And I've got the then I've got the leg I've got the crap in the subculture I grew up with or the Christian tradition I grew up in or the political tradition I grew up in. I mean it's just it's just all a mess and I can't even see straight. And that's really where faith and grace come in because yeah, I might I might be really disciplined about being the best person I can be. And that's where <laughs> the irony then is that strength turns into tyranny. So that's where I have to live by faith because I've got all mm. these ideas of what perfection is. Yeah, you give me enough power and you give me enough license, I'll become a tyrant. So that's where I have to say, okay, um, I, I, I'm probably going to get a lot wrong. This is what I think, but mm-hmm. I'm going to even have to hold that loosely. But, and and I'm not going to dominate you or or be a tyrant. Yeah. Not to ask. This is a question I, I loathe, but it it bears asking because we did bring up the why, and then there's the why of suffering, like the why of imperfection. Like, what would why would something that is perfect deign that there be an imperfect world? Like, what is being proved here? What is being tested or experimented with through? Uh, imperfection yeah i have no idea (laughs) but the one of the interesting things about the problem of evil is that that 
doesn't get raised until about the 17th, 18th century, which is a really fascinating historical tidbit. Hmm. Because we look at it today and say, well, that's the most obvious question in the world. And and it was asked by a variety of people. Church fathers dealt with it a little bit and came up with some answers. But but basically the assertion that I can't believe in a God because of the suffering in the world really didn't rise. Probably we see it after the Lisbon earthquake, fire, and tsunami. Um, okay. It was a terrible tragedy in Europe. So there's something there connected with the Enlightenment where we began to think that we could, in fact, perfect the world. So those things seem to be connected, but we don't know why. The usual answer was given by Job's wife in the book of Job, where Job's life falls apart, and Job's wife says, curse God and die. Or, or the answer given by Odysseus, which is, I'm going to be crafty enough to set the gods against each other and outfox them. It's only much later that we began to say, I can't believe in a God because the world is messed up. The ironic thing about that answer, though, is, okay, then what's your plan? (laughs) (laughs) And that's where you get into utopias, because people say, oh, I have a plan to make the world perfect. And I hear, I say, oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Do you have a perfect life? Yeah, that's a good. That's a good uh, kind of a breakdown of that that progressive thinking. Like uh, it, again, it's that kind of like a Christian or even pre-Christian story about this rebelliousness, this rebelling against something, rebelling against the obvious, rebelling against limitation. Uh, it could even be a very righteous rebellion, a rebellion against evil. Like how much more righteous can you get? Yeah, but something sneaks in. Something's caught in the blind side of your searing hatred for the evil, that that then launches you on a path of of amplifying everything evil inside of you, or even everything just mi- minor, minorly imperfect becomes evil because it's then magnified. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly right. Hmm. Exactly right. Well, thanks for your time, Paul. Oh, that, this was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, I enjoy your channel. I watched, I watched the vid- the video you put up today. I hope it stays up. It oh, we'll was, see. it was, boy, it was hard to watch, but I thought that, important. Okay, see, I was thinking about that when you were talking about like turning the, the other cheek, and I was playing, I was playing some Art of War stuff there. I'm like, this needs to be talked about. And there's there's the whole thing like I could be risking something, but there's the other thing like that I've tried to practice in entering into like the critical discourse. Like, how do I be humane to the person? How do I not dehumanize? Because that is exactly the last thing I want happening to people. So it was just, I don't know. I'm sure I didn't walk that tightrope correctly, but well, this is where loving me people people get so flippant today. Well, well, my religion is love. Well. Do you know how hard it is to love a human being? Hmm. Well, maybe when they're a baby. Well, you know why it's sort of easy to love a baby, unless it's in the middle of the night. Um, It's sort of easy to love a baby because the baby isn't capable of much power. Well, and, and so what does it mean? So for about five years, I literally had a homeless man who lived outside my door. I couldn't open my door without stepping over him. And so then I had to live with this question, what does it mean to love this this person who is a drug addict and an alcoholic and uh, he's got mental illness and, and you know, and it's, 
it's tremendously hard to love another human being, especially because there's lots of us. So mm. mm-hmm. it's it's so difficult to deal with those questions. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, it sometimes feels easier to do it in the abstract, but that's not the kind of love we need to do. So no, but, especially but this, in. Go on. No, go ahead. Well, especially in in this current world in the digital landscape, it's very easy to just completely dehumanize the other person like you know i can do as much as i want against this person because they're not really real or they're really small or they're really far away or you know like they'll i'll never touch them because there's billions and billions of people but the problem with that is that that scales like you were saying it the, the fractal starts to grow and then what we end up doing is entering into and propagating a pessimistic society and a nihilistic society that then begs for a tyrant reformer or some sort of Christ or somebody just coming in and, and pulling the plug, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> None of us are going to get out of this alive, Benjamin. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But we can all be dying gods in our own small way. How, what was your what was your solution to the man on the door? Um, was it just a daily solution? And I, I lived a lot of daily solutions. He eventually attacked a member of the church. Okay. And because he would garbage pick, he brought all kinds of garbage here. And when I was around, I managed it. But when I went on vacation, I wasn't here. Yeah. And I'm about 6'4", 230 pounds. He never attacked me, yeah. but he attacked an 80-year-old man. He didn't attack him badly. He cut up his hand, but neighbors saw it, called it. I mean, for, we tried to get the police involved for years, but eh, it's a complicated mm. business. But at that yeah. point, he crossed the line, spent a year in jail, and now there's a restraining order. He hasn't shown up. He just got out of jail a couple months ago. He hasn't shown mm. up yet. He probably will, and the saga will continue. Hmm. But, you know, he's – I consider the man my friend, and I very much want good for him, but he wasn't an easy man to love. People would – you know, he'd get, he'd get ticked off at me if I threw away a bunch of his stuff because became a health hazard. And, hmm. and then he'd be out there screaming threats against my life, and people are like, he just threatened to kill you. I said, yeah, he does that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's, it's, but, you know, okay, so there's a, there's an example that we look at and say, oh, but life is full of such examples. Maybe not quite so stark, Hmm. but, you know, parents and children that don't get along, husbands and wives that don't get along, neighbors that don't get along, nations that don't get along, you know, these things do scale. And so, Hmm. Work, work on them. You know, you want to, you want to be a Christian. Well, try loving the people that you share your home with. What does it mean to love them? Mm-hmm. It's a good place to start. It's really hard, and yeah. and it doesn't mean always being a doormat because sometimes love means saying no. Parents know that. Yeah, yeah, and God knows that. Yeah. What? Uh, what? What? Walk, walk softly and carry a big cross. I guess would be. <laughs> <laughs> That's good too. <laughs> See, I'm getting lots of good stuff from you today. <laughs> well, yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Like, the, there's, there's things that are both for and not for church. 